people who are taking photos of mailboxes being trashed and the like that are years old, that are effectively stock photography, they're, they're old from old news stories, and they're attaching them to tweets about decisions that the USPS is making right now. And so you have this combination of a legitimate political debate combined with an actual example of disinformation that is making it more difficult to have it legitimate. And one of the interesting things is that a couple of people have found that you know local election officials have said that now people are calling in and canceling their order for mail-in ballots because of all of the coverage of the USPS issue makes them believe that their mail-in ballots not going to be counted. If those people don't end up voting, then that was election suppression. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 20th, 2020. This week, on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Alex Stamos, the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory and the former chief security officer of Yahoo and Facebook. Alex has appeared on the podcast before, but this time we're having him on to discuss a new coalition he helped set up called the Election Integrity Partnership, a group focused on detecting and mitigating attempts to limit voting or delegitimize election results. Disinformation and misinformation around the U.S. presidential election has already started popping up online, and it's only going to increase as November draws closer. The coalition aims to counter this in real time. So how will it actually work? And, of course, we also asked Alex for his hot takes on TikTok, the popular video-sharing platform facing pressure from the U.S. government over concern about influence from the Chinese government a very close second to voting disinformation and its democratic gravitas. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 20th. Alex Stamos on fighting election disinformation in real time. Alex, uh, so welcome back. I believe you are our first repeat guest on the Arbiters of Truth series. And we wanted you back because you recently joined together with a bunch of folks to set up a coalition of research entities called the Election Integrity Partnership. So tell us what it is and what might possibly have led you to start that initiative now. Well, thanks for having me back. And I I do expect a green jacket like a multiple host of SNL gets. Um, So yeah, the Election Integrity Partnership is a group of four research organizations that have a long history of, of doing work researching influence operations and online disinformation. Specifically, my group, the Stanford Internet Observatory, University of Washington Center for an Informed Public, so that's Kate Starbird's team at, at UW, Graphica, which is a private company that builds social media analysis tools, uh, and the DFR Lab at the Atlantic Council. And the idea was that you know these four groups are going to be doing work around the election anyway. And kind of the default would be that the election would happen and and six weeks afterwards, we'd all start publishing papers on all the kinds of different disinformation that we saw and who we thought was behind it. And we thought, you know, maybe this time we will try to have an impact in real time and and get that stuff taken down. We'll still be talking about it later. We'll be doing academic work, I'm sure, after the election. But we'd like to also have a positive impact in the run-up to the election by helping platforms spot this stuff, take it down, and is also to provide transparency to the public and to election officials of the kind of election disinformation that's out there. Cool. So can you walk us through like a hypothetical case study of how you see the coalition working? Like we probably can't imagine the depths of stupid that this is all going to descend to. So it's probably hard to predict exactly what's going to happen. Um, But what's the kind of thing that you're planning for? Like what kind of information would you be looking for? Who flags it? Um, and, and what's the actions that you take after that? 
Right, I'd be happy to. So there's really two inputs into the partnership. Uh, one would be a referral from the outside. Uh, and so we are building relationships with community groups, uh, voter suppression groups, the people that have vote monitors, for example, throughout the country, groups uh, that have cared about voting rights, uh, as well as the Election Integrity ISAC, which is the official organization that is handling reports of hacking uh, from local election officials. Uh, as you both know, we have something like 10,000 groups uh, involved in running elections in the United States. And they are supposed to, if they see a port scan or a SQL injection from Russia, they report it via the EI-ISAC, and then DHS and FBI can take care of it. Uh, what's a little different about disinformation is that these government agencies, their legal kind of capability to deal with disinformation is a little more limited. And so our goal is to then for that to be referred to us. We'll also be looking directly. So we have API integrations with Facebook and Twitter uh, that have already existed, uh, as well as we're building systems that look at a number of other platforms. And so we're going to have a war room of students. So we're, we're hiring, it looks like 30 to 35 Stanford students uh, who will be working in shifts. We'll be looking at the output of our tools that are that are looking for what is the highest trending discussion about the election in certain areas. And they'll be looking to see if this stuff is possibly disinformation or not. And if they either see it themselves or they get an outside referral, they'll be opening up a ticket. They'll be running a checklist of, of looking what is going on with that information. How much has it been spread? Are there other examples of that disinformation on that platform? And I think very importantly, they'll be looking at other platforms. And that's something that's different between what we're going to be doing and what you might see out of one of the platforms themselves, for example. And then that will that war room, that first tier, will refer that up to a second tier of analysts. And this is where all of those different organizations come in of the deeper analysts who have done this kind of work before are going to be able to look and see, hmm, is this actually the tip of the iceberg, right? You know, so here's an example of what might happen. Maybe somebody creates a Facebook Live uh, where they are lying about what is going outside outside of polling places in a city in a swing state. And they're trying to discourage people from going and voting in person saying, oh, Antifa uh, started a riot outside of the polling places uh, in downtown Philadelphia. So if we spot that Facebook live video, our people look at it, they very quickly verify, oh, this is a video of, you know, of a protest from months ago, or from even a different country, they will fill that out, look to see if that's being pushed in other places, if other platforms are referring to it, if the video is being streamed on other platforms, uh, refer that to the platform so that they can make their own determination under their policies, whether it violates or not. And then the analysis team can go look and see, is this part of a coordinated attempt? Are there multiple uh, fake accounts that are behind this? Can we tie this to an existing adversary group that does this kind of work? And so our, our goal is to you know, clear it out as quickly as possible, but then also to do that deeper look and analysis that we believe is, is necessary for kind of the democratic transparency about what actually happened during the election. So that's fascinating, and there's a, a ton to dig in there. But before we get more into the details, I want to just ask a sort of basic question, which is, like, why is this necessary? Or to put it another way, you know, why hasn't everything that you're describing here been done before, right? Like, this is not the first election that has had problems. Why now? Right. So we're trying to plug in between there, you know, there are a lot of groups that are doing good work in this area. And there are people at DHS CISA. So the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is a, a new agency under DHS, and they are part of the Countering Foreign Influence Task Force uh, with the FBI, who are supposed to be working on this. The word foreign there is critical. And that is one of the core issues for the government's response here, is that the kind of government authorizations around dealing with these issues 
are around either the FBI enforcing the law, of which you know domestic disinformation about elections is in some cases illegal, or in trying to stop foreign influence. The problem with influence operations is you don't know if they're foreign or not for weeks later, maybe months. And so you can't make it a threshold question of whether something is foreign or not to act. And you know it's, it's actually quite complicated of who can act in what situation. But our understanding is that there are some significant limits around the capability of anything that is related to DHS or that takes government funding to be able to do work in this area. Now, the platforms themselves are doing a bunch of work. One of the interesting things here is that there's a, a huge disparity in the, the amount of resources different platforms can throw at this. So my understanding is Facebook has about 150 people working on election integrity. Twitter probably has like in the 50 to 60 range. Google is somewhere in that number. And then that drops off pretty quickly, right? Like when you talk about the Reddits and stuff, you're talking about one or two people. And then the vast majority of user-generated content platforms that might have content that is related to the election have zero people working specifically on this. And that's one of the other th- holes that we're trying to plug. You know, there's a specific example here that we're, we're trying to deal with, which is there's a campaign by a Russian intelligence agency, we're not sure exactly which one yet, called Secondary Infection, which was a six-year campaign to change the conversation about a number of topics, but especially Syria and Ukraine. These are things that obviously Russian intelligence has, has done in the United States before. This six-year campaign touched 300 platforms. And the whole thing was caught because Facebook found a small number of posts and then turned it over to these outside researchers, two of whom are part of our coalition. And then those researchers found all this other content on these other platforms. We're trying to prevent that from being something that happened six years later. We'd like that that cross-platform look to happen in real time. And unfortunately, neither in the government or in the platforms is there anybody well positioned to do that based upon the the constraints under which they operate. So I think that's really helpful. A lot of really uh, important points there. I myself have been talking and, and writing about sort of the distinction between foreign and domestic that gets drawn. A lot of the public conversation and media concentrates on the foreign threat, but often it can be hard to draw a distinction. And it's also not necessarily clear why domestic disinformation is something that we shouldn't be uh, equally concerned about. And, you know, the there's obviously going to be a lot of that as well. And the the cross-platform threat that you're talking about. But you also mentioned earlier that, you know, you're going to be referring things to platforms to evaluate against their own policies. Uh, and a lot of them will have different policies and, and different standards. And so what are the signals that you will be looking for when you're engaging in this kind of research? Is it a particular kind of claim or a particular piece of like subject area? Or are there other kind of signals that you're choosing to focus on? So that's a great question. One important point about what we are doing is this partnership is specifically focused on election-related disinformation. So we're not looking at general political disinformation. We're not looking at COVID-related issues. This is about the election. And we are specifically looking for four categories of disinformation. So the first is is misleading information in which we call procedural interference, which is disinformation about the election procedures themselves. Uh, so for example, this would be information that tells people not to sign their mail-in ballot or, oh, well, you know, they're running a special. It says to put a stamp on your ballot, but you don't have to put a stamp on it anymore. That's the kind of disinformation that could cause somebody to, to not have their vote counted. Second is participation interference. So that's disinformation that might be used to deter people from voting or engaging in the process at all. So this is, you know, the example I used before of there are riots outside of your polling place. That's participation interference. You're trying to get people not to vote because you're lying to them about the conditions of the vote or the risk that voting has for them. The third is disinformation that 
or maybe it's information that encourages people to misrepresent themselves. So actual asks of fraud, information for people that have how they should lie or they should misrepresent themselves. I think that's not going to be super common, but it's something we're going to look for. And then the four is kind of a category that covers all three of those, and which I think is actually the most important in 2020, which is disinformation that calls into question the integrity of the election without it being based on fact. Now, this is the really complicated one, right? Because there's a lot of legitimate arguments about how we run elections. They are not, it is not a great process in the United States. And so we're trying very hard to have standards where we're looking for disinformation where people are inserting facts that are falsifiable and that are truly false to make people believe that the election was stolen while excluding claims of you know, political claims or claims about the process that are, are part of kind of the legitimate political debate. Uh, and, and doing that is is quite difficult for us. So part of the difficulty, I imagine, is you're sort of wading into an area where, thanks in large part to rhetoric on the part of the president and the Republican Party, saying that, you know, something is false, right? Like say that, you know, there aren't actually, there isn't actually a massive amount of voter fraud is on the one hand stating a fact, but on the other hand can read as political as weighing in against the president. So how are you thinking about this? How are you looking to sort of show a nonpartisan cred when you're doing this work? Well, our goal is to come up with standards and definitions that we apply fairly. That doesn't mean the outcome is necessarily fair, because you're right. There, there is a disparity right now in the two major candidates of who is saying that the voting process is going to be rigged against him um, and who is not. And, you know, I think that is just going to be a natural part of dealing with disinformation in this context. And the best we can do, and what we are asking the platforms to do, is to try to be crisp and specific about definitions, to make those decisions ahead of time and to document that ahead of time, uh, and then to stick to it whether or not there seems to be a disparate political impact. And I think that's one of the problems that the platforms have created for themselves, is that a lot of the exceptions that have been made have pretty clearly been made due to external political pressure. This is not just true in the United States. This is a, a problem globally. Uh, but in doing so, it, one, encourages people to work the refs and encourages politicians and governments and other important officials to use their power to try to intimidate the platforms to make content decisions going their way. But it also greatly reduces the faith people have that these decisions are based upon some kind of standard. Uh, so we we just today published a blog post about this. We did a, uh, a look at the policies across six major platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, Nextdoor, and TikTok. And we tried to measure them against each other and to say whether we felt, you know, we didn't say whether we agree with the policies or not. What we tried to judge the policies on is is there a policy in each of these areas? Is it comprehensive or not? So our outcome was not good or bad. It was comprehensive, non-comprehensive, or none. And, and that's what I think the first thing we can ask for these companies is, even if we don't have a super explicit ask for how they should act, we do believe that they should be specific in documenting that so that we can hold them to whatever they say they're going to do right now. And then also that it reduces the chance that, that the refs are going to be worked in the heat of the moment. So I have to ask, uh, most of the platforms that you're looking at in that blog post made total sense to me. You know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, TikTok. What's going on with Nextdoor? What's what's your interest in Nextdoor? Because I, I definitely, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't think of them as a, a hotbed of uh, election delegitimization. 
They haven't, but they have been a bit of a hotbed of disinformation. Uh, and there's some examples of that. I think Nextdoor is fascinating to me because they have several hundred thousand small social networks that they operate in the United States that are based upon people's physical location. And there's no mechanism to monitor that if you're not part of that group. And so what they've effectively done is they've created all these, the local equivalent of Facebook groups, except there's no good way to insert yourself into it if you're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, and as a result, they they have become the kind of place that you see a lot of disinformation spreading. I don't know for you guys, but our next door is unfortunately, even here in kind of suburban Bay Area, a very blue county. There's some stuff in our next door that is is very questionable, both talking about COVID, uh, but also just kind of talking about people of different races and the like. It's a, it's a little bit disturbing. And I can only imagine what next door is like in places that are you know, more politically mixed. Um, and so we had them up there because I, I do believe Nextdoor is positioned to be the kinds of place where you could have election disinformation, especially because what I expect we're going to see in 2020 is not the kind of organized foreign groups that are operating out of a building in St. Petersburg, for example. But what you're going to see is groups of motivated Americans who are part of, who are politically motivated, who are part of groups like, say, QAnon, who are then spreading disinformation because they have been asked to, and maybe because they actually believe it themselves. And so it would be very difficult for the Internet Research Agency to have an impact on Nextdoor. It is exactly the kind of place that a organization like QAnon could have a huge impact. My imagination was just running away with me with like the next series of the Americans pandemic edition uh, is all, all on Nextdoor. Um, okay, so... <laughs> As you adverted to earlier, it seems entirely possible, or if not likely, that there will be attacks on the legitimacy of the election, both before and after. Uh, and one of the things that we always ask journalists about on the on the podcast is how they think about sort of amplifying disinformation and drawing attention to campaigns that don't necessarily have a large uh, impact or much engagement, even if there's, you know, thousands and thousands of accounts that get taken down. There aren't very many people that actually saw those accounts or the retweets or whatever that's involved. Uh, how is that something that you think about in your work in terms of uh, drawing attention to campaigns that you're uncovering? That's a great point. That's something we're actually thinking a lot about. Our plan right now is that we will be doing a very thorough look of all the different kinds of disinformation we saw in the election after the election is over. In the run-up to the election, we're going to be extremely careful about what we amplify, because you're exactly right. There have been a bunch of examples of influence operators who go and they create you know, maybe dozens or hundreds of accounts. They're able to push a bunch of content that is numerically large, but has no real quantifiable impact on people's discussion. And they're able to get it covered in the media as if it's the worst thing ever, and their message gets spread far and wide. And I think that is a pattern that, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this work is we would like to provide to our media partners quantifiable evidence of, yes, this is going on, but from the numbers we've pulled, we don't think it's that influential. Or yes, it's somewhat influential, but we believe that this is an appropriate way to handle it. We're going to be publishing some more blog posts about this, uh, but we are not going to ourselves be amplifying messaging that we believe has not earned the reach itself. Now, if we find some campaign and it's been highly effective, then we're going to have to make the call at what point it hits a level where we believe that the transparency of the existence of that campaign is a critical thing. But our, our goal is not to find something and then blog about it, find something and blog about it, because you're right, that can immediately amplify it. That's something that should be discussed afterwards of this is the kind of stuff we saw. Uh, but in the heat of the moment, I think we have to be really careful about what we publish.
So tell us a little bit more about your media partnerships. Like what, what's your relationship like? So we're, we're talking with a number of legitimate media outlets. Our goal is for if they spot something online, they can refer it to us and that we will get back to them with our findings and, and then give them a period of time because they brought it to us of a, a, you know, where they get the exclusive. For things we find, uh, we're going to have a small group of outlets that will be pre-briefing before we release something just so we can make sure that that information lands accurately and that we're able to answer their questions uh, before it goes out. I think that's one of the challenges you have right now is you've got to balance the immediacy and the importance of putting out information about disinformation so there can be counter messaging with the fact that if you just put it out on Twitter immediately, then it creates a vacuum of facts that will be filled with people's beliefs and their presumptions. Uh, and you know, finding that balance where we're not creating a vacuum of facts is, is one of the things we're trying to do. Yeah. So one of the reasons I ask about that is that you've been a pretty big critic, I think it's fair to say, of the media's role in this whole conversation. So spell out for listeners who may not have followed that. Like, what What is your critique? And do you think that the media is getting any better? I also, you know, I say this acknowledging that I'm somewhat part of the media and also that media obviously is not a monolith. There are a lot of variations. But to paint with a broad brush, what's your critique? Yeah, you're right. And it's it's difficult to just say media because you're right, it means a lot of different things. And there's, there's a big difference between, say, the Washington Post and Fox News uh, when it comes to dealing with disinformation. So let's, let's define, just for this moment, media as kind of the legitimate, responsible outlets who are trying to do the right thing. And in those cases, I, when it comes to disinformation, my biggest criticism is that they have done everything they can to ignore their own part that they played in the 2016 election. They have done everything they can to amplify the responsibility of the platforms while ignoring their own responsibility. And those platforms had responsibility. I had responsibility. I've said this on multiple podcasts that I made mistakes and my coworkers made mistakes and Facebook did not have the right. We did not have people looking specifically for disinformation. It was not the kind of thing that we had a dedicated team working on. And that was a huge problem. The other thing that happened in 2016 that I think was actually more impactful than the disinformation that was on the platforms was the GRU hacking leak, right? So this is the, main intelligence directorate of the Kremlin, breaking into the email of the DNC, John Podesta and the like, selectively leaking that and completely changing the tenor of the media discussion about Hillary Clinton in the last several months of the election, right? And I think if you are a political scientist and you read the books that have been written about that time, the network effects, um, it is very difficult to come to the conclusion that that it, you know, the IRA activity is stuff that was constrained to Twitter and Facebook. Was it all at close to impactful as the GRU activity? And the responsibility, though, for that is much more distributed, right? Those, you know, the people who were played there was effectively the entire U.S. media, as well as a huge number of media consumers who were convinced to raise up the faults of Hillary Clinton and to consider them at the same level of all of the other things that were coming out about Donald Trump. And so it's it's a, it's much more distributed. It's much easier just to say, well, Twitter and Facebook screwed up than to deal with the fact that our media ecosystem has a core vulnerability, which is if something is stolen or leaked, they will cover it and they will cover it as a scandal. And so as a, if you have the ability to have hackers like the GRU does, that's able to get access to data that isn't available to anybody else, that gives you an incredible power to change the overall media narrative. And the tech companies have admitted fault. They've gone and they've, apologized. They've written papers. They've built these teams. I can't think of a single major media outlet that has published 
a retrospective of how they screwed up in 2016 and how they're going to do better. There have been a couple of columns by individual columnists, but certainly if you look at the interviews of Dean Baquet, the, the, the editor of the New York Times, it is clear that he has learned absolutely nothing uh, from the podcast that he has done. Um, and so there's this kind of, this is the kind of thing that bugs me the most is there's the significant hypocrisy from the responsible media of casting all the blame on tech when they're not willing to look at themselves. And this isn't just about what's fair. It's about whether or not we're protected in 2020, because the continuing, probably the largest vulnerability we still have is to the hack and leak. If Kamala Harris's personal email was dumped out to Fox News right now, is there any question that the exact same thing would happen as happened in 2016? And I think it's quite possible we'd have the same sequence of events of disinformation coming from kind of the conservative media, changing the overall impact of how the, the race is covered, uh, and that having significant downstream impacts on people's voting patterns. And so that, that that's kind of my biggest issue on this. On, on some of the smaller issues, is, like I said, I, I get concerned about the the willingness of the media to believe that any disinformation online is automatically magically impactful. Uh, again, this started with the IRA content in 2016, which was you know, not very significant compared to the size of all the other content and advertising that was run during the period of time. Um, and so this disconnection from the quantitative or qualitative measurements of impact continues to mean that the media amplifies disinformation attacks that haven't really earned it. Yeah. So I, I have to say, I think a lot of that critique is is extremely and unfortunately fair. And I, I do want to push you, though, on on whether we could see, you know, hack and leak operation 2.0. It's absolutely true that sort of the grandees of the press have not engaged in public soul searching in the way that we might want them to. But do you think that the same thing could basically be carried out again? One of the things that I found really interesting about the impeachment and the sort of Joe Biden misinformation campaign that the Trump team was trying to peddle was that you could sort of see the press like trying to figure out how to cover the story without giving credence to these false rumors about Biden and not always succeeding. Is So do you see any change in how the press deals with these kinds of things from 2016 or is it really just the same thing all over again? I mean, there's certainly changes. And I think there are a lot of thoughtful reporters. I mean, this is, this is again, why I have to be careful to say in the media, because we also have to separate out Fox News from everybody else, right? Because that's the other issue we've got is we have this conservative media that is willing to amplify or to help entertain these, these radical positions or to write things that, that create a lot of noise to keep people from questioning whether or not what they're being told is true. And so, you know, that is one of the issues that we have to continue to deal with is that Fox News is such a huge influence on our political life. And I think that's also the the rest of the mainstream media likes to downplay that. Uh, maybe they don't like to, but they downplay that because dealing with the Fox problem is clear that is very difficult to do that without coming up with rules that impact themselves, right? So it's much easier to talk about Facebook and Twitter because that doesn't impact the New York Times. It's a lot harder to talk about the Fox problem because they are well within kind of the the, the mainstream of what is considered the freedoms that are afforded the political press, uh, where it's much easier to kind of write an editorial that gets Section 230 incorrect um, and to say that there's too much freedom online um, than to say that there's a television station or large media corporations that are really ruining our politics. But, uh, you know, I think there are individual reporters 
who are doing a much better job. There's some individual reporters who are doing fantastic work in disinformation. I expect if we had a hack and leak, you know, I, there was some New York Times article about you know the Podesta emails, I believe, where the mention that this might have been a Russian operation was like paragraph eight or nine. So that would definitely be paragraph one right now. You know, I maybe experienced the media a little bit differently during the impeachment hearings, where it seemed to me there was a lot of credence given to these claims and a lot of amplification of the claims, and it actually looked a lot the same to me. And I think, and that was even in the case when it was being pushed in a way that was obviously explicitly partisan. I think one of the, my concerns is that there's a lot of capability for, you know, really good information actors like the G GRU to hide their fingerprints. Uh, and so it's quite possible that the next time this happens, that they don't did an even better job of keeping partisan fingerprints off of pushing some kind of theme. And it's going to be very difficult to deal with true documents that have been leaked in a adversarial manner. Uh, you know, I still have not seen some good discussion of how that should be handled. Okay, so if that's the differences uh, with the media from now in 2016, and one of the other key differences is coalitions like yours with the EIP, let's take a look at industry. They also seem to be collaborating more, or talking about collaborating more at least. Um, last week, a bunch of companies, including Facebook, Google, Twitter, Reddit, and Microsoft, they released a statement reassuring us that they're working closely together and with the US government to counter information operations. Uh, you've said that you think this is really that this is good, um, but that there are important platforms missing. So why does this kind of collaboration matter and what should they be doing? Uh, so as we talked about, these campaigns always operate on multiple platforms, right? And I think that's one of the things that the companies are trying to come together to deal with is the fact that if they find something that that might be the tip of the iceberg and the iceberg actually exists on one or a collection of other platforms. What they're actually doing in those meetings is hard to tell. This is a continuation of meetings that started when I was at Facebook and that I chaired uh, in the run-up to the midterm elections, um, but that, that has been expanded significantly. And uh, the team, specifically at Facebook, has done a bunch of work around coordination, and I think they should be thanked for doing that kind of work. It's unlikely that it's going to solve the problem for the smaller companies, but I think one of the things they're trying to do is to reduce the chance that if something gets caught by one of the big companies, the Google, Twitter, Facebook being specifically the big ones, that the ability for those same actors to continue to operate with impunity on the next tier, which would be the Pinterests and the Reddits and the Snaps and the like, is reduced. Now, there's a whole tier after that. Like I said, with secondary infection, there's 300 different platforms. And so the the long tail here is much longer than exists inside that. I think that that last press release came from TED companies. And so there's 290 more uh, that might be relevant. And so that that's an interesting question of how, as a society, do we want to handle that long tail? Because that's generally a governmental responsibility. But in this case, since we're talking about political speech, it gets really, really sketchy. Uh, but I, I am glad that they're working together. How effective that's going to be is something that we're going to see. And I think that what we'll, we will hopefully see is that there will be takedowns that are coordinated much more quickly than they were in the past, which has definitely happened again between like the Facebook and the Twitters and the YouTubes. What I'd love to see is that the same time stuff comes off of them. It comes off of the snaps and the reddits, you know, within hours or minutes, not within weeks, which is what has happened in the past. Do we know what success looks like for 2020, or is it sort of the absence of failure that we're hoping for in all of these spaces? Like whether it's from the platform's work or from your work, how do you define success? How do we know uh, if things have gone well, or is it just that we're hoping that there isn't uh, an epic fail? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, the the problem is, is that true success would be defined as like zero bits of disinformation about the election being shared in real time. And getting to that level would require, by definition, kind of a suppression of speech that I don't think we want, right? And so it's it's difficult to define a, a success that requires, you know, kind of complete and total control of what people are saying about a, a democratic election. And so we, we have to have, we have to have a target goal that is reasonable and that we believe is achievable without, you know, completely overturning what we think is acceptable bounds of, of political speech. And that's difficult to do. I think what, what I would like to see is I would like to see that there's not Again, I don't want six months after for there to be a report written about some kind of massive campaign to affect people's actual voting patterns that was running on multiple platforms that went without anybody catching it. I think, you know, some kind of large coordinated campaign, either domestic or foreign, would be a symbol of failure. If there are individual instances of people trying to lie to their neighbors and such, I think that's inevitable. I think the measure there is whether it's handled in a fair, transparent, and quick manner. But the you know the the existence of something kind of big and effective, especially if the election is close, and that then you know brings into question whether the outcome was fair or not, that would be seen as as definitely a failure. So I'm curious what you make of the sort of public conversation around election integrity right now versus what you're actually seeing in your work at the Stanford Internet Observatory as to online activity. So a lot of media coverage is really focused on foreign disinformation threats, you know, putting Chinese disinformation efforts up against Russian disinformation efforts. Is that the right focus of the conversation? Like, how does that compare to the actual threats you're seeing at Stanford? So I think it's highly likely that the biggest threat will be domestic. And I think it's quite possibly some of the worst stuff is going to come from people who are not trying to be intentionally bad actors. You know, we, we've had a lot of discussions with local election officials about the kinds of problems they faced in the past. And it turns out there's a, a good deal of disinformation where people have reasonable concerns about disenfranchisement or irregularities in the process, but then they are willing to believe or to amplify disinformation, you know, unwittingly. And that has a much larger impact. And there's an example from one official that I'm not going to name right now, because I, I think he's, he's still dealing with this, uh, that during the primary process that people were taking pictures of lawn lines outside of the election places that he was responsible for. And we're saying that this was part of election suppression, that these people were not voting. Um, and it turns out, you know, the lines were because they were socially distancing. They were being careful about who's being let in. And the actual flow of people had met their their level that they believed would, would allow people to vote within a, a reasonable period of time. But this message got amplified bigger and bigger and bigger until a bunch of celebrities actually started uh, amplifying this message. And one of them started sending food trucks to go feed the people in line, which then attracted effectively a street party of people who wanted to go to the food trucks that was sent from a celebrity. And this spiraled into actual election suppression because now people couldn't get there to vote, right? And so those kinds of things are, I think, what we're going to see a lot. And they're also really difficult to deal with, right? Because at, at what point along that chain does that actually become disinformation, right? And at what point does it become you know, uh, affecting the voting process? Something that's happening right now is there is a very legitimate debate about the Postal Service and changes to the Postal Service and whether that's going to affect the ability to move absentee ballots and mail-in ballots around and what is the impact of that. 
totally legitimate political debate. But a lot of it has been powered by disinformation. There's a lot of people who are taking photos of uh, mailboxes being trashed and the like that are years old, that are effectively stock photography. They're they're old from old news stories, and they're attaching them to tweets about decisions that the USPS is making right now. And so you have this combination of a legitimate political debate combined with an actual example of disinformation that is making it more difficult to have a legitimate. And one of the interesting things is a couple of people have found that, you know, local election officials have said that now people are calling in and canceling their order for mail-in ballots because of all of the coverage of the USPS issue makes them believe that their mail-in ballots not going to be counted. If those people don't end up voting, then that was election suppression. How do you handle that is extremely hard. And I think that's exactly the kind of stuff we're going to see. And, and my, my big nightmare here is really the Iowa Democrat caucus, right? Like there's no evidence of anybody doing anything intentionally malicious in the Democrat caucus. There are a bunch of procedural failures that were amplified by a technology failure that meant that the the vote count was messed up. But without any evidence of actual malfeasance, partisans, and in this case, all from inside the Democratic Party, all jumped to the conclusion that the caucus was being stolen and immediately injected that idea into their supporter groups. And those supporter groups amplified it, amplified it, amplified it, including injecting a bunch of new rumors and disinformation that they had heard that maybe they believe, maybe not, but that corresponded with their their priors. And it created this huge toxic mess of disbelief around the Democratic caucus to the point of where they just effectively stopped counting at some point, right? And my fear is that we see 20 or 30 or 40 of those on election night and that that's happening in a bunch of localities that are actually critical and that that will really make it difficult to come to a conclusion who the president is or ends up with 40% of the country thinking the election was stolen. And so where we're hoping to plug in there is specifically around when people are injecting the evidence or the ideas, right? If you're attaching a photo and that photo isn't actually from that day, if you're try if you you saw a video and it's of ballot stuffing in Russia in 2012 and you attach it to a tweet, those are the kinds of things that we are hoping to detect and to point out uh, and and hoping to push the platforms to action early, whether that's taking it down or just labeling as disputed. That has to be dependent on the exact kinds of disinformation. Um, but that is, I think, much more likely than a the kind of coordinated foreign influence that we've seen in the past. It's interesting that, that you mention Iowa because I remember – sort of watching the conspiracy theories among the Democratic Party and among sort of left political activists spiral out of control while that was happening. And one of the things that struck me about that was how there's a sort of sense among people who have access to, you know, all this information that they've become incredibly savvy and therefore are (laughs) able to see through falsehoods that And it actually just ends up feeding conspiracy theories that, you know, because you can do some Googling. And I think it was like Pete Buttigieg, someone related to Pete Buttigieg had some connection to the app that was developed to run the caucuses or possibly not. And that was spun into this whole conspiracy theory where there are people who actually think of themselves as being really savvy who are essentially drowning in information and using that to confuse themselves and everyone else. So how do you think about penetrating that? Like, how do you cut through that fog? Because it does seem to me like, you know, the USPS stuff is another example. Even if you point out to people that, you know, that picture is old, something like that, there's often a response of a lot that's along the lines of, you know, you can't fool me. I know that this is really a problem. How, how do we deal with that? 
Yeah. It, you know, it's just, I know people have written about kind of the paranoid style of American politics and that actually being something that's quite old. I wonder how much of this is kind of our recent, and when I say media, I don't mean news media, but kind of the, you know, books and movies. We have so much of our popular media is based upon the idea that there is some kind of grand conspiracy behind everything that happens. And the truth is, I just told this, you know, for the students that we're hiring, you know, we just had the first tranche of them come through and I gave them a little pep talk. And part of what I talked to them about is, you know, it's really important for them to be doing this work because the older you get and kind of the closer to the centers of power you get, the more you realize that the actual, that there is no man behind the curtain. There is no Illuminati. There is no Calvary over the hill. There's nobody who knows what they're doing actually planning everything, right? The, the truth is, is that the world is an insane place and all kinds of crazy things happen and that people in power are generally faking it until they can try to figure out what to do. And yet we have this idea, I think you're totally right, that something about the fact that you have instant inf- access to information and that it can all be brought to you, that everybody believes that they are, you know, that they're in front of the big cork board and they've got the strings that they have figured out uh, the incredible conspiracy that nobody else sees. And and I don't know how you push back on that other than to try to reestablish people's trust in the voices of folks who, you know, are much more careful, right, of the traditional media that we were criticizing before that like, you know, people have lost trust in that journalistic process and the idea that there's a, you know, that there are some outlets that are going to be very, very careful before they print a fact. And they are willing to accept anything that that reinforces their priors, um, whether or not there's any evidence behind it. Uh, and that is, I think, of, you know, I, I do a lot of work on trust and safety of all the, the bad things that happen online. And one of the reasons that disinformation is one of the hardest issues, it's one of the situations where the victims are very much part of their own victimization, that they are active participants in seeking out information that either makes them feel like there's a man behind the curtain or makes them, it reinforces their political beliefs. Uh, and it's very difficult to fight that kind of situation when people want to insert themselves into that kind of information environment. So I think you've given us a bunch of really good examples there about how it can be really hard to draw the lines of what is disinformation or misinformation in terms of content. And for the crew, that's always platforms need to do better and crack down on misinformation or disinformation. There's some great examples there of how it's always not not always clear where exactly the line is. But I want to shift the conversation to where the platforms often say they police this, which is not based on the content, uh, but based on behavior. And last time you were on the podcast, we were talking about uh, coordinated inauthentic behavior and sort of wh- whether that standard really is determinant or means anything. And I think this is an area where it's one of the reasons why the conversation focuses on foreign information campaigns a lot, because we sort of feel clearly that there's something wrong there. But when it comes to domestic political activity, it's hard to work out where the line between legitimate political coordination and illegitimate manipulation of a platform is. And platforms sort of say that they're getting better and that they're they're working on defining these more clearly. Do you think that there has been a lot of progress on that count since 2016? And how clear do you think the standards are when it comes to working out what is legitimate and illegitimate in that space? Right. So, I mean, as we discussed that time, the, the coordinated inauthentic behavior idea was really a plug to a very specific hole in Facebook's policies, which is that you could have a lot of content where the individual pieces of content are not violating of any policies, but the coordinated behavior behind them is is violating or is, is causing harm and at the time did not violate and we need some kind of rule to catch it. 
it's unfortunate that that's still what people are using in 2020. I was actually part of a conference that had multiple platforms and they called it, you know, a discussion about CIB, uh, which, you know, you, I think you were part of it too. And we're not really supposed to talk about anybody else being there, but I was, I was fascinated at how like people were still pivoting into this idea of the coordination being the key thing. And I, I, I think you're right. Like it, this all falls apart in 2020, partially because it's domestic, partially because we're no longer talking about secret coordination. Like the, the kind of the, the theory there behind uh, those policies was that you have some kind of conspiracy where people are working together in a way that is hidden from the person who is eventually getting the information of the fact that that information was pushed upon them uh, for a purpose and perhaps by somebody who's lying about who they are. And that's not how it works anymore, right? Now, the message of what is our message is just perhaps even said from the podium of the White House, right? Um, and then that filters down through a number of partisan media outlets and then eventually into the blogs and eventually into the blue check marks and then eventually into huge crowds of of accounts that might be fake, might be real. It's very di difficult to tell the difference that are perhaps being coordinated on uh, other sites. And, and so the, the structure of this has definitely changed um, in that the disinformation structure now is about it's much closer to kind of the the ISIS problem than the intelligence problem, the IRA, GRU problem, which is you have a group of highly motivated individuals who are part of a platform that is not one of the major platforms who are able to coordinate there and then push their message elsewhere. And so that's what you see the QAnons and like, uh, where you have kind of two locusts of of activity. One locusts, uh, in that case, it's it's Akun, you know, the 8chan, um, as well as a bunch of like Telegram channels and the like. Uh, and then the second locus is the amplification stage. And the fact that those two things are disconnected means that there's no individual platform that's in a position to deal with the problem overall. And uh, yeah, I think that is still an issue where the, the platforms have not figured out how they're going to handle it. And we saw, you know, kind of a hint of how they might handle it with the, the banning of the Boogaloo, which happened on a number of platforms pretty much simultaneously, but most notably Facebook. That was, I think, a little easier because a lot of those people were calling for actual violent acts. And so it's a lot easier if you have a, a private Facebook group where a lot of people are talking about shooting each other, you know, that's pretty obvious that there's like a, a, a violent real impact to other people in situations where those small groups are just about political disinformation and there's no explicit or even implicit calls to violence. I think that gets a lot harder and then also hits a point at which we might not want the companies to act. And I think that's the other issue here is that we, we don't really have a good mental model of how much do we want to restrict the speech of individuals, especially in, in private groups that they have intentionally sought, sought out. I, I think that is one of the hardest decisions that have to be made. And, you know, the, the journalists who criticize these private groups generally don't have a model of why those private groups and not the ones that they themselves belong to should be looked into by the platforms and, and actioned. And the platforms themselves don't have a good standard of what level of actual human harm has to happen before you take action on those. So we're, we're running out of time, but before we let you go, we wanted to take a, a bit of a change of pace and ask you about uh, everyone's favorite story this month, which is, of course, TikTok. <laughs> um, so yeah. we're we're recording this on August 18th. There is uh, the time is ticking on the clock set by Trump's executive order, limiting access to TikTok. TikTok's challenging the order in court. There are conversations about American companies buying the platform. So this is a hard story, and there are a lot of different moving parts and factors uh, debate around what the nature of the threat posed by TikTok is and whether the administration is just acting based on politics. You've 
written about your views about this on Twitter. Can you give us a brief overview of how you see the threat and what you think of the administration's response? Yeah. So uh, I guess the the sum would be, I think there's a real threat from Chinese-owned apps. I don't believe TikTok is the most concerning to me right now. And I believe the administration's actions are imperiling the ability of the United States to build a reasonable consensus about this in the future uh, would be the, the toll. So you know, to start, why there's a risk. So I think we have to roll the, the calendar a little bit back to 2013 to the Snowden disclosure. So Ed Snowden's back in the news because now Trump's talking about pardoning him. Um, again, it's August 18th, so it hasn't happened yet. Uh, but you know, if we look at what we learned from that, one of the things that I learned, you know, I took over as the CISO of Yahoo after that. And then, you know, while I was at Facebook, dealing with the, what was disclosed by Snowden was still a huge part of my job. One of the things we learned is that if you are a large tech platform and you are not actively considering large countries as your adversaries and then building them into your threat model and taking specific technical and operational steps to keep large countries out of your data banks, then they have access to that data, Right. That is what we learned from the Snowden disclosures is that not just through the front door of FA-702 requests, aka PRISM, uh, which are legally documented and if sketchy in a lot of ways, at least have some legal oversight, but the NSA was tapping fiber optic cables. They were backdooring pieces of hardware. They're doing all kinds of other stuff to get data out of these companies in a way that was not really controllable. And so if you're not actively stopping that, it's happening. And I think that's how I think we have to think about TikTok and other Chinese companies is not necessarily that they are intentionally going to the Ministry of State Security and saying, here's a petabyte of data, have at it. Now, it's possible that kind of stuff happens. I think it certainly happens when it comes to Chinese citizens themselves. I expect that when it comes to overseas citizens, that these companies are much more reluctant. But if they are not treating the Ministry of State Security and the People's Liberation Army as their adversaries, then that data is most likely getting there anyway. And so... There is a legitimate concern about having all this data under the control of, even if it's not physically in China, of engineers who are based in China. That being said, TikTok itself is not as concerning to me because the content that's on it is not that interesting. So you're not talking about the content being interesting. The metadata and the identity of individuals is somewhat interesting. And there is a long history here of the Chinese breaking into large data warehouses, stealing huge amounts of data, and then and then matching it all up on the back end. And so there are some theoretical worlds in which them having access to everything on TikTok could be useful to, for them. Um, what's you know a lot of people will be concerned about is their ability to use their algorithm to change what people are talking about in the United States. I think that's definitely a reasonable concern, but it's also the kind of thing that would be very difficult for them to do secretly or silently. That's the kind of thing that would become obvious pretty quickly. And so you know when it comes to TikTok, I'm not so concerned about them. I think as a country we need to figure out a way for American companies to operate in China and for Chinese companies to operate in America. Uh, and we need a data protection regime that means that the data of American citizens that is critical, uh, especially the content of their communications, if it's private communications, is not accessible to the PRC and that those companies are treating the PRC as an adversary, just as the major tech companies treat the US government as an adversary post noted. But to do that requires a much more complicated kind of data protection regime that is enforced on many different companies, not just TikTok. And the fact that it's pretty clear that the administration just decided that for the death penalty in TikTok and everything else has been a post hoc rationalization means that it's much harder for us as a country and the next administration to come up with a reasonable set of rules that get fairly applied across 
dozens or hundreds or thousands of companies. Um, and so I think this is actually a very dangerous moment. The other thing that's going on right now is we're just weeks away from the second decision by the European Court of Justice that makes it very difficult for American companies to operate in Europe and to transfer data into the United States. And so the way the administration is handling this is really been beneficial to those in Europe, those in India, especially, who have been pushing for data localization and pushing for American multinationals to put data centers and lots of employees into these regions. And so that you know, has completely reversed a decade of American foreign policy when it comes to the open internet. And I think that's a huge loss and something that's going to be very difficult to undo. Yeah, so I think that's a really helpful sort of overview uh, and good background to the sort of really big picture question that uh, we were going to finish on. And it seems remiss sort of not to ask you, given your background in both industry and and policy now, but and it's kind of unfair because it's asking you to forecast the future. But I feel like I'm reading, you know, lots of articles at the moment that have headlined something along the lines of like the global internet is dead or the splinter net is here. Um, cyber sovereignty is the future. Uh, and I think you sort of laid out how that's taking place, but also perhaps a path forward to avoid that. What do you think of those claims? What is your sort of prediction? And um, how optimistic are you for for the global web? I am much less optimistic than I was six months ago because it used to be one of the only countries uh, where it was the official policy of the government to fight for the open web and to stop the splinter net was the United States. Uh, And again, years and years of work uh, that was done between Silicon Valley and DC to push that idea globally has been undone in just a matter of weeks on this TikTok issue. And so if we end up in a situation where every government believes it's in their best interest to have a section of the internet that is under their unique control uh, and that they have legal dominion over that is not diluted by the needs of users, human rights standards, or the requirements of other countries. If every country believes that, then the splinter net is inevitable. I think the only way we can undo this is if we convince a group of democracies that the open internet is a positive thing as long as it exists under a reasonable shared framework of governance that you know, makes democracies happy and makes authoritarians unhappy. Uh, And that was going to be a hard thing to do no matter what, especially because, you know, the PRC themselves have been extremely effective in ICANN, in the ITU, in a bunch of different uh, organizations of pushing kind of the Chinese idea of individual unique internets. And so that was already going to be difficult. If the United States no longer believes in that, then it's going to be impossible. All right. Well, I feel like I say this a lot, but on that cheerful note, um, we're going to have to close it out. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you. And I hope you have me back again. I'd like to be the, the Steve Martin of, uh, <laughs> of podcast guest. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank. And our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.